York, New York, big city of dreams. I'm talking, talking, I'm talking straight out. New York, New York, big city of dreams. Hey everyone, welcome to the Nick of Time show where we give you that Nick's talk just in the nick of time. As you can see, two of our superstars are out. <laughs> Lee got the graphics in the background. As you can see, two of our superstars are out, but we're following NBA rules. So two of our superstars are still here to celebrate this Knicks victory over the Washington Wizards, the first win for the Knicks in the in-season tournament. I got my guy Lee here with me. The Knicks win 120-99, to 99, smack the Wizards in Washington, drop the Wizards to 2-10. and 10. The Knicks rise up to 7-5. and five. I'm going to go through some stats right quick. So the Knicks almost shoot 50% from the field, 45 of 91, 42% from three, 16 of 38. And the Knicks dominated the Wizards on the glass as well, 48 to 32. We're going to get to player stats. So who led the way for the Knicks tonight? Your man, Brunson Burner, Jalen Brunson. Let's go! <laughs> 32 points. Seven rebounds. And then you also have Julius Randle contributing with 22 points, seven rebounds, six, eight assists. That and was Texas, course, baby. Yes, sir. And, of course, we got Quick coming off the bench. Great homecoming for Quick. 27 points in 33 minutes. And the Knicks pretty much led from the beginning to the end. The Knicks were up by, by as much as 23 points. The Wizards, they fought back. It was hard to put them away. But then I think the turning point in the game was when the Knicks were up by 10 and at around the five-minute mark in the fourth quarter. And Jalen Brunson hit that big three to put the Knicks up by 13. And from then, it was just smooth sailing. From there, and the Knicks got their first win in the in-season tournament. Now, Lee, what are your thoughts about the game tonight? Man, I got hella stoned in the first half, and I was like, I was so stoned to pay attention to what was happening, bro. I had to wait for the come down. Luckily, halftime uh, saved my life and my sanity, so I came back to watch what such a half and just in time to watch uh, Brunson and Randall Cook. And man, it made me think, like for as bad, it's surprising how bad the Nets are in, in covering the P the PNR pick and roll, considering how great they run it on offense. Like I mean, multiple switches, like whether it's Brunson and Randall, now even Randall and Mitch, RJ and Mitch, RJ and Brunson, like they're really good. One of the actually the best Brunson and Randall are one of the best pick and roll duos in the NBA. And it's odd with all that efficiency and success they see from running that play, they have a very hard time defending it. There were multiple instances where just open lanes were created by Kispert and Kuzma, just straight to the rack. Uh, uh, off those pit and rolls. And a lot of it was Julius Randle didn't stuck in those pits and, and clamped down. So he wasn't able to roll the basket and provide some extra help. But I mean, once we got that cleaned up a little bit toward the end of the third quarter, uh, the Knicks kind of maintained the lead throughout. I was, there wasn't a, there was no cardiac Knicks. And I like to think those days are over, you know, two to three years ago where every game felt like it was going to slip away from us. Brunson coming here cleans up a lot of those mistakes and having Emmanuel quickly in his fourth year gross uh, of, uh, evolution and progress will clean that up even more like those those two as closers are vital to us being able to hit free throws hit clutch shots and defend at a high level yeah man um it's funny because when you watch the Knicks throughout the years one of the major needs for the Knicks were point guard and somebody who actually closed games and we have that in Jalen Brunson, and you have that in Quickly as well. When Quickly comes off the bench, and he and he provides those good fourth quarter minutes, um, the Knicks were never, you know, they were never in threat of losing the lead. I believe even when the Wizards cut the lead down to five, it always felt like the Knicks were in control of this game. And every time the Wizards came back, the Knicks hit some big shots to put the lead back up, but ultimately as it is with most teams when you're battling when you're battling all game to come back eventually the energy is going to drop and the, and the team who's been leading the whole way they're going to eventually get to a point where they put you away and that's what the Knicks did tonight and this was a game that the Knicks were supposed to win yeah it was a two and nine been playing terrible all season they shut down Jordan Poole Jordan Poole only scored eight points two of 11 shooting I think he had five turnovers as well. So Jordan Poole was a non was a non-factor. And Kuzma's been playing well this season. They held Kuzma to Kuzma to 19 points, eight of 21 for the field. So 
the Knicks what the Knicks did what they had to do tonight, and it's good to and I think it's it's good to get that feel good win, that first win for the in season tournament. Yeah, man, there's been some stressful moments during the Leon. Actually, more under the Scott Perry era, as I would say, it extends for a little bit further back from Leon Rose, where the the Knicks have gone years where they're really good at being competitive and so above 500 teams, and then they would lose consistently to the under 500 teams. And this season might be the first in my fandom where I feel completely confident that when an ass team comes in, we're going to smack the hell out of them and move on with a W. And the Washington Wizards are probably the most institutional poverty team in the NBA. It's close between them and the Charlotte Bobcats, bro. I say Bobcats on purpose because they're just a bum-ass franchise. They don't even they don't even deserve to be recognized properly. Uh, the Wizards, though, man, it's where like overpaid guys, you know, don't, don't get the, the bad. And they have a roster full of ill-fitting, slow but long forwards that struggle putting the ball on the floor and shooting from three consistently and play no defense. They have like five of those guys. And they all kind of play the same way and demand the same high usage rate on ball. They're all me first chuckers. None of them really play much defense besides Gafford uh, and now Trey Jones, who are probably two of the both of them I would consider above average defenders. But their main high usage guys, Kuzma and Jordan Poole, have no interest in playing defense on a consistent basis. Um, so it's a lot of like Julius Randle mentality over there on that team, except they don't have a Tibbs or Leon Rose to establish a culture or Brunson the close. Uh, so yeah, this is a game that we should absolutely not lose to. But that hasn't always been the case in the last couple of years. So to be able to, to go on the road and grab another win, another back-to-back against these like real ass, you know, Atlanta, Washington, I wouldn't say Orlando anymore. The Clippers, Toronto, those are teams, even though we have trouble with Toronto, we should go into their building and it should be, for the most part, a guaranteed single-digit win, if not double-digit, because of how great we're on defense this season. Number two in the NBA, one of the best half-court defensive uh, teams in the NBA. Like, there's no reason why we can't whoop up on teams with inferior talent. Yeah, most definitely. And it also helps when you play in places like Washington and Atlanta, even Orlando, where it's pretty much a Knicks home game. With you the heard that? And that show up at each one of those games, <laughs> pretty much. You heard that too? Yeah, let's go Knicks in Washington. It's always crazy when the Knicks go there to play. They were going crazy for quickly. I loved it. Man, bro, everyone in the show has been saying it. And I might have been the first one to say, like, give that man whatever he wants. I stand by it. He, it's so interesting. We are in the same situation Dallas was with Luke and Brunson. Now we have Brunson, I manual quickly, and we cannot make the same poverty decisions that that bum-ass Dallas franchise made and let Quick get the bag elsewhere, maybe even at a value contract. Because to me, 25, 27 mil is a good number for Quickly. That's a number that he can overplay and exceed that contract, in, in my opinion, less than two seasons. Because of his ability to be an elite defender, you don't let a two-way kid like that with a high potential and high ceiling to get better as an ISO player and better off the dribble, man, keep him, pay him the bad, let him be the one overpaid contract on the entire roster. Why not, man? We have a great cap space as it is. Yeah, I agree. Quickly is definitely proving his worth this season so far. And I think it is beneficial for the Knicks to have multiple guys on the squad that can handle the ball. And when Quickly and Brunson plays together, it puts less pressure. It looks, it put, it gives it, all right, let me rephrase my my words. Okay, so with Quickly and Brunson on, on the court together, it puts less pressure on Brunson to do all the ball handling. With yeah. Quickly on the court together, it it kind of like splits the load, and Brunson doesn't have as much on his shoulders when he's trying to carry the team to the win. So that's I mean, fin- it's a fantastic point. I remember when we got Brunson that offseason, I said to you and Jay Ellis. Uh, at the time, what I love so much about the situation is Brunson didn't have to come to the Knicks and be the savior because at that time we had solid depth with Derrick Rose and Emmanuel quickly. And I referenced that trio of point guard options. You can sustain a one to two game injury where one of those guys is out and still maintain your, your offense and defensive efficiency. We cannot afford to lose quickly because it pivots uh, McBride in a higher usage role than I think he's effective in. I love him in 10 to 12 minutes. You get rid of quickly, he's playing 25, 27, maybe even sometimes 30, depending on injuries and shuffling their rotation. And that's not something that I feel comfortable with. Quickly should be our 25, 27-minute-per-game guy and basically come off the bench but close games out too. Yeah, I think the only issue with quickly is I know quickly wants to start. And even though quickly comes off the bench, he still plays starter minutes. Like even tonight, he exactly. played 33 minutes, I believe. Facts. And- 
And the fact is that, you know, and I, and I know a lot of people are clamoring for quickly to start. I see some, you know, some people on Twitter clamoring for quickly to start and they hit rhymes and <laughs> and things of that That's nature. Me. But but if you look at how the minute distribution is, quickly basically pays start a minute. So it's like, yeah, he, he does he does he come off the bench? Yes, but he's essentially a starter for the Knicks. He's used like a starter. Pretty good point. Uh, to me, it's I think. Grime, Grimes is the glue of the offense and doesn't provide another person who needs the ball in his hands, needs plays ran for him, and needs to be on ball. He can act, he actually runs and creates space and does off ball movement, action, and uh, setting picks. Where when you have Emmanuel quickly, Emmanuel quickly is more looking to catch the ball and then start going into some action offensively. And it's a, it's more the pace and the rotations and the, the equity of the roster is better when quickly is off the bench. But I just love Quickly so much. I've been doing way for him to reach his full potential, which to me is what we're seeing from RJ. That level of play on both ends of the floor, I think Quickly can be that as well. I just want to start the kid because you know him and Brunson are my two favorite players, man. You cannot get rid of it quickly. Yeah, definitely not. And I do think that with the way the Knicks roster is set up at the moment, especially the starting lineup, you already have three guys in that starting lineup that's averaging 20-plus points a game. So it's like – so if you have three guys – on the court together that need the ball. I feel like you need to at least have two guys on the court that don't need the ball and who's just going to slide into the offense, you know, do all the small things like play defense. If they're open, take a shot, whatever the case may be. And you've got that in Grimes. And of course, Mitch doesn't need the ball either. Mitch does all the Bats. dirty work, rebound, play defense, block shots. So I think the starting lineup is good as it is, but yeah, the, the Knicks need to do what they can to keep quickly. Like don't, you know, don't let quickly leave. Unless it's unless it's a major move for a player that is going to transform the team, in my opinion. Yep, hundred percent agree. Okay, so now let's start. So now let's talk about the players. Um, first, I want to start with Brunson. Of course, Brunson was a star tonight. Thirty-two points, seven rebounds, seven assists. When the Knicks were in some jams, hit some big shots to push the lead back up and help the Knicks get this win so lee what do you think about Brunson's game tonight bruh i said it when we got him man he is the single best free agent sign in the history of the new york nick franchise he has taken us he has kit started our rebuild i think to a whole nother phase where now we have someone we can build around that doesn't yet make players better but has shown that he can play with any other kind of player. He can play with the catch-and-shoot guys. He can play with the very high-usage isolation guys. He can play with guys who can cut to the basket. He Now he's starting to play more of the pick-and-roll alley-oop game, lob game with Mitch, and I love that about him. That You don't have to say yes or no to a trade target or a free agent signing because of how it might fit with Brunson. Brunson can fit with anyone from Cat, God forbid, Embiid, Zion, I think even Luta, if him and Luta reunite in New York. So it's just unbelievable to have a closing point guard. He's showing that game too against Atlanta, which I wasn't able to join y'all, but still was able to catch the highlights and, and watch Brunson's unbelievable play. To me, solidified the Brunson versus Trey Young debate. And we lo- I love having that because Trey Young's a villain in New York. I mean, throw some stats at you about how efficient Brunson was yesterday uh, with Atlanta. 25, 8 assists, AM 19, 6 to 10 from 3. Trey Young, 15 points, 17 assists. Over four from three, four, 12 overall. And that's been my argument with people who hype up Trey over Brunson. And I think Trey's stats are very gaudy, but I would argue he hasn't been a great fit with DeJounte Murray and he hasn't really made anyone besides Clint Capella on that team better than they were without him. Uh, Brunson, I think, has raised the game and the efficiency of just about everyone that he's played alongside. Most importantly, RJ Barrett and, jo- and Julius Randle. So he doesn't now, if RJ's out, I thought like we're kind of getting back to the flow where Brunson had bit up the slack and be that closer that we're used to. Man, with all three of our guys playing the way they are, bring anyone on the playoffs. I'm not scared of a single Eastern Conference team. I think we smack anyone that we go up against. Some some teams are five games, some teams are seven, but I have no fear of anyone in the East. Yeah, man. Um, But the Brunson and Trey Young comparison is funny because to me, Trey Young is more of a facilitator. Like, yeah, Trey Young can score the ball, but he is also the guy that he, he will find his teammates and and get them easy basket and things of that nature. And to me, Brunson is more of a scorer. He's more of a closer. You know, if you need if you need a basket from Brunson, he's going to get you that basket. And then on top of that, 
Brunson is showing, at, at least as of late, he's also showing that he also can get his teammates involved as well and and give them easy shots also. So at least for, at least with this season, and I even think in past seasons as well, I do think Brunson is the better point guard overall with Trey Young. I just think with a lot of people, they see assists. And they automatically think like, oh, my gosh, this guy gets so many assists in the game. He's a true point guard and blah, blah, blah. And and he must be one of the better point guards in the game. But when you really compare Brunson and Trey Young's game, I don't think Trey Young has a bigger impact on the game than Brunson has, even though Brunson doesn't get as even though Brunson doesn't pile up the assist like Trey Young has. My man, perfectly said. Trey Young, without a doubt, is a better playmaker and a better facilitator. I think he is also more of a gifted player than Brunson. I think Brunson's more skilled. I think he's worked on his game. And the one argument that you, you cannot make is that Brunson has been a better evolved player throughout his career. Trey, the same way Trey came in, he kind of still is now. His three-point percentage have been up and down. I think he averages like 30. Him and RJ average almost the same percentage for their career from three, which is wild to think about because RJ is widely considered one of the worst three-point shooters in the league for a high-usage player. And it, Trey has this weird perception that he's one of the best, but the Nets come in of Steph Curry when actually he's been very inconsistent from the, from the three-point line. He just has a lot of range. He didn't go very far back in his three-point shooting, but I agree the impact that Brunson has. Look at how Brunson has grown from his rookie years of second round pick in Dallas, backing up Dennis Smith Jr. to now where he is in New York as arguably a top five point guard in the NBA and the most efficient player at the point guard position in the NBA. Give me Brunson all day. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I do want to I do want to point out one thing about Brunson though, which is I wouldn't say it's concerning per se, but it is kind of weird because if you look at Brunson's stats last season, if you and if you look at Brunson throughout his career, he's been a very efficient shooter, especially with from the two point range and from three point range as well. And he used to take he would take more two pointers, like more mid range shots, get to the basket, finish at the rim in the past, but this year, there's been a reverse of fortune, matter of fact. Now, this year, he's a sharpshooter from three, which he's always been, but now he's taking more threes and making them, and now with and now inside, a, inside the arc, he's not making as many shots as he used to make, especially in previous seasons, and I'm not sure if, like, he's trying to find his, if he's still trying to find his groove when he's within the arc, but it, it, I just find it weird that all of a sudden now his three intake has increased and he's getting in more threes. But now when he's inside the arc, he's not scoring as often. All speculation and, and assumptions based on the eye test. But I would say it might be him a little exhausted after playing an entire s- season last year with the Knicks, his first as a permanent starter. And at a very high, one of the highest usage rates in the NBA, one of the highest minutes per game in the NBA, having a closeout, and especially in the playoffs when Randall was apparently playing on an injured foot and everyone else's three-point shot was nowhere to be found, quickly, especially in the gutter, Brunson had to really put the team on his back and like carry every single game with a win or a loss. Then he went to FIBA and did the exact same thing, playing a lot of minutes in FIBA as well. The starter, not always a closer, but always a starter. And now he's in his second season with a very high usage rate, and they really needed him those first couple of games of his season too. He's playing a lot of minutes, so that might it might be an adjustment to a, a much more increased role and being exhausted after a season, a postseason, and a FIBA tournament. Uh, all that combined, I think he's just maybe finding his groove conditioning wise, and hopefully he'll be back to, to normal in January, February, or sooner, at least yeah. before we play the Mavs, because I want him to play and light them up. <laughs> I need revenge for that game I went to last season when they booed my ass off the stadium, bro. It was embarrassing. <laughs> I got clowned hard, dude. It's like wild and out, but the but it was wild and out, but the entire arena was against me. <laughs> <laughs> Lee being a menace to society in Dallas is always uh, a ma- ma- major troll. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I'm hoping that Brunson will turn it around when he's inside the arc as the season goes on as well. So we talked about quickly. We talked about Brunson. Now I want to get to the third guy in the big three for the Knicks tonight, which is Julius Randle. He had 22 points, seven rebounds, eight assists. Early in the season, he was struggling. It seemed like he was either, I don't know if he was confident in his angle, if he wasn't count, if he if he wasn't confident in his angle as of yet, or whatever the case may be, but it seemed like he was 
feeling his ankle early in the season, but as the season has gone on, he's definitely picked up his play, and now he's looking like the Julius Randle of old from last season. So what do you think about Julius Randle's performance tonight? Got it. I mean, Melo was pretty divisive during his time here, but Randle might be the most divisive Nick of all time. And I imagine it probably was some whispers behind the scenes, even with Ewing in his prime when he struggled to really like close out games in the playoffs and had back-to-back great performances in playoff series too, you know, especially in like 94, maybe he was talked about to the same degree of like skepticism and critique as Randall, but it feels like Randall's personality, his family, his like private life, everything's under the microscope in the social media age. But like I said, I'm in the season, man, I'm putting him on my back, not to the same degree I put Melo because bro, I went to a gauntlet defending Melo for four or five years, man. I'll never do that again. Uh, Joyce Randall, though, is someone that I really love. I got I got a lot of respect for it when he's engaged on defense. Wasn't always the case. Today, there were a few possessions, and I was like, bro, here we go again being a traffic cone on defense and not getting back, not hustling, not putting the same energy, even though Mitchell Robinson does every possession and is doing massive levels of cardio out there on the court. Like en- Enough for some guys like DiVincenzo at like, times, too. So it's frustrating when you see your supposedly best player not to have 100% effort on defense. But his efficiency is back, man. Uh, I- if you you can tell if someone watches the Knicks or not, if they say shit like even year Randall, odd year Randall, they just take the Knicks for clicks, Twitter bait that you see the accounts with a lot of followers. You know, they push those messages and, and for for content purposes and engagement. And it's not indicative of why those things happen and just the randomness, arbitrariness of one year being good and one year being bad. And Randall's finally breaking that curse. It almost looked that way in the beginning, but you know, he's back to his efficient state. And I think that it's playing a little bit more up tempo and quicker decision making with Baldwin's it's stuck for long periods of time. And he's sitting there to think about where guys are at and what move he's going to do. That's when Randall starts getting in trouble and starts turning the ball over. So the more read and react quickly and intuitively, the better he plays and the better the team plays. Yeah, most definitely. Um, he did have six turnovers tonight, so it wasn't one of his better games where he actually um kept possession of the ball. But overall, I did think he had a good game tonight yeah. on the offensive side of the ball. Um, I think one of the improvements with his game is, like you said, um, when he gets double teamed, he doesn't hold the ball anymore. He's quicker to pass the ball, which we've been saying this, you know, the whole time since Randall's been here, like. Randall, when, he, when you're in a double team, don't hold the ball. Pass the ball quicker, and he's doing that. And I think the one thing about his game that I like as well is in the past when he held the ball in a double team, I felt like he was trying to look for the open guy rather than just making the quick pass. And nowadays he's making the quick pass. Even if even if the guy he's passed to is not open, at least what he's allowing is that when he passes the ball out quick, he allows the ball to swing around to eventually get to the open guy. And I think that's the one thing he's been learning this season. But yeah, effort he he does lack effort on defense at times in this game. But overall, I didn't think he played well, and I'm just glad to see that he's rounding back into form, and he's turning and he's turning back into the Julius Randle that we saw last season. But now, with a quicker release of the ball when he's in double teams, you made a distinction, and something else I've noticed too is the last two or three seasons when he starts to place a greater emphasis on playmaking. He tends to jump in the air and then make his decision, or he stays stationary and he drives, defense collapses, and he almost always passes to the perimeter. The longer the pass, the higher frequency you have of someone running the passing lane and stealing it. Now he's starting to make the short pass where he, when he, once he was in the post and position to score within five to seven feet, rarely did he get that option to somebody else. He tended to take it and it would end up with him bulldozing his way into the court, losing it out of bounds getting it ripped, getting it stolen in his rip through or when going to the basket, getting it stuffed. Now he's starting to get that nice little pocket pass to Mitch and RJ on the post for super easy buckets. It doesn't always have to be a kicked out to the three. Teams start watching tape. They understand that your tendencies. It's easy to steam against that. If you start doing those pocket passes, you never know where those players are going to be if you're moving without the ball. And this Knits offense, we're seeing that and it's increasing pace and it's increasing our assists. Keep it up. Yeah, most definitely. And I do like the fact that he is finding Mitch Moore in the paint as, as opposed to last season. Got to. You, you have to. Mitch is he is one of the highest percentage shot attempts in the entire NBA and where he is under the basket. It's it's a better dunk percentage than Randall, who's not dunking at all this season. Even RJ Hart, Hartenstein, 
Give it to Mitch if he's close to the basket. Just toss it up in the air. He's going to catch it. He's going to dunk it. If he misses, he's going to get his offensive rebound, and then he's going to dunk it. Come on, bro. Give it to Mitch. Most definitely. And I do want to talk about a player that did find Mitch tonight on alley-oop, Dante DiVincenzo. So, as you know, RJ and Grimes were out tonight. RJ with the migraine, and I think Grimes has an hand, a wrist injury, if I remember, if I remember correctly. So the Knicks decided yeah. to go with Hart and with with Hart and Dante in the lineup to replace those two. Um, I think Dante did play well tonight. And again, I know people have been clamoring for quickly to start rather than to start Dante. So I just want to know your thoughts of Thibs going with Dante ahead of quickly to start for Grimes in the lineup tonight. Uh, I I have no interest in like quickly starting as a pinch hitter that doesn't that's not going to make him a better player overall that's not going to be enough of a sample size for him to really make strides and improvements in his deficiencies that's going to take a 15 20 game starting sample size not once every 15 14 games due to injury so like it doesn't i don't care who starts when it's an injury replacement i'm more about the set rotation and the set starters moving forward uh like when Fournier was replaced with Grimes. That was a high-impact decision-making because now you don't have the worst defensive backcourt in the NBA with Brunson at point. Uh, I Personally, I like the fact that Evan Fournier and Miles McBride played. The Tibbs that lost us that game in Dallas last season, which oddly enough turned the season around after that, was because of his refusal to play Fournier in that moment or Cam Reddish in that moment. He stuck with that six or seven-man ridiculous rotation that had no Brunson, no RJ. Those are the times to expand the roster and allow other guys to get some burn. And I like that Miles and Bride played 14 minutes and Evan Fournier played 16. That shows that Tibbs is evolving a little bit. He understands, hey, these guys present a different skill set that my current rotation of the ones who are healthy don't. Miles and Bride plays high-level on-ball defense that Brunson cannot replicate. Evan Fournier gives you a constant three-ball that Josh Hart cannot replicate. Let's give those guys some opportunities and see some different sets. So, hey, all that tape that these opposing teams have been watching, steaming for you, now it's kind of thrown out the window because you're actually playing with guys that no one on that opposing coaching staff ever predicted you to play. What does that do? It gives you new opportunities for storing and defense, too. Miles McBride's a much tougher cover, tougher cover for Dre Jones and Jalen Brunson is. Now you can't hunt the point guard on, on offense. Like Those are great things to have, and I'm glad to see Tibbs be a little bit more elastic and his thinking, which we didn't see too much last year. And man, shout out. Who, who knew? Here I am. Shout <laughs> out to his baby. Let's go! <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I don't care whether Dante starts or quickly starts. It doesn't really matter to me. I do like the fact that he did use McBride and Fournier tonight, especially knowing that the Knicks are going to be playing back-to-back. Could be the Knicks are going to go back tomorrow uh-huh. night and play. So if, if they was to go with the seven-man rotation tonight, the team would have been stretched out. They would have been tired going into the game tomorrow. That would not be – that would definitely be no bueno right there. So the fact that That's... he used McBride and Fournier and the fact that even Fournier, he played decent defense tonight. I wasn't I wasn't mad at Fournier when he was on the court tonight. He he didn't score or he didn't score a rock much, but he played decent defense, and I was proud to see that out of Fournier tonight. You already know what you're going to get from McBride. McBride's going to give you that tough defense, and he definitely gave – um. Jones and pull some fits when he was on them as well. Almost stripped. I think he almost stripped pull. He, I think he stripped. I don't know if he stripped pull or Jones. I can't. Re- I can't remember. But he did get a strip off of one of them, and then he almost stripped one of them again, and they got the ball back. Yeah. So McBride definitely plays top defense tonight, and I'm just glad that Thibs saw the situation for what it is. Back to back. Let me not stretch. Let me not stretch my guys out and play guys off the bench that he knows that can can that can contribute and give them a chance. bro. 100% agree. Facts. Okay, so regarding the game, Lee, is there anything else that you want to get off your chest? Defense still needs to get tightened up on pick and roll. Nets are getting better at defending the perimeter. It helps that Washington's a terrible shooting team overall and also has like very high-volume shooters too, guys that won't quit shooting or try to shoot themselves back into the game. That benefits us as well. Um, no, man, I, I like the fact that Julius Randle is not letting all the critique and negativity of the beginning of the season get to his head. That's an RJ move, man. I've always commended RJ, even when he wasn't the most efficient player. Man, the dude was just his mental game is strong. He didn't take the critique and all the 
like terrible jokes that were going on when he was liking certain accounts on Twitter. People were speculating <laughs> on his girlfriend and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like he didn't get rattled by it. He started to experience that NBA, um, the bright lights of the NBA and NBA media, especially Knit fans that are extremely harsh. We have a whole subset of bums on Twitter that coin themselves negative Knits Twitter, which is I do all day, just I shit on all the players they possibly can. We got like one favorite, and everyone else is a bum, but they want to get rid of it. It's like, uh, so do y'all even remember the days of Lou Amundsen, bro? I'm going to keep saying that bum-ass name because the nightmares it gave me when I had to watch this <laughs> lanky, long-haired, no offense, having Phil Jackson loving, like, bum-ass at the waste of roster spot and salary cap. Like, come on, man. We can't, like, go after some of these young players and start cultivating. No, that wasn't Phil Jackson's plan, man. He was too busy, like, stoned in his sleep in the stands. Kind of like me. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I, I, I like I like Julius Randle. Showing some mental fortitude, which is not a phrase I've ever used to describe him before, but we're seeing that this season, and he's putting together another back-to-back, a solid All-NBA level campaign, and he's doing it shooting less and averaging less, which I appreciate. I would love for R.J. Barry to finish the season as our leading scorer, but I'll be just as happy if he was second leading scorer. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I'm not going to call out any names, especially since we're not live right now, but yeah, there are certain people within the Knicks Twitter world that do that do seem like they have pitchforks out for certain players. Whenever those players play well and they and they deserve their props, nowhere to be found. But then once that player messes up, the pitchforks are out and they always try to bring down a player and things of that nature. And it's just weird behavior. But I'm not going to get into those people right now on Knicks Twitter that do that. Um but yes, the Knicks had a big win tonight, 120-99. Knicks are now one and one in the in-season tournament. Let's go. Let's go, New York Knicks. And now I'm gonna get to other news. Okay, so it seems like as of late, the rumor, the rumor mill's been on brewing, and Zach Levine is being shot by the Chicago Bulls. It seems like both sides mutually mutually agree that it's time to part ways, especially with the Bulls' slow start to the season. Now, it's been rumored that Zach Levine's representatives, Clutch Sports, Rich Paul, said that they don't want Zach Levine to the Knicks, and they're not interested in Zach Levine being traded for by the Knicks. Lee, what are your thoughts about this new revelation? Well, that's, that's not necessarily new, but, you know, this revelation that came out as of late. Ooh, lots to unpack there. Uh, me and JLS have had this conversation offline, and I think maybe once, twice in a pod. Levine is the number one hardest player for me to determine whether I want to pursue him, whether he would be a good fit, and whether we, he would make us a contender. I've had moments where I have been like on Twitter saying, yes, this can happen, and also other moments where I've expressed my pessimism based on his inability to advance. First of all, make the playoffs as the best player on the team. Randall has a better success rate than, than even Zach Levine does at doing that. Second, Zach Levine has always kind of outworn his welcome at the two places that he's played. And there's been questions about his effort, motor, defense, consistency, conditioning at both places that he played. He's also had trouble getting along with front offices and coaches at both places he played. He was shipped out by Tibbs and Gerson Rosas, who follows me on LinkedIn, to Chicago. Is that a relationship that can be repaired? Will he... What I doesn't seem like all the optics doesn't no point to him wanting a reunion with Tibbs or maybe Rosas. Maybe that's part of his pu- public statements and his clutch agency by not wanting to come to the Knicks. Am I offended by it? No, because thank thank God this isn't 2018 anymore. And Emmanuel Moody is on this roster. Like we have a solid second to third round bound playoff roster. Zach Levine no longer is worth giving up IQ and Grimes or IQ and RJ. Last season. I was very open to the idea of a package around Grimes and RJ and some picks. Now, you would, I think I would pick RJ over Levine right now based purely on efficiency and defense. RJ statistically, all the advanced stats, all the metrics, is a top 10 on-ball defender in the NBA at this very moment. Levine is below mid. Also, shooting percentages. RJ shooting like 50% from three. Close to, to 50% from uh, overall in the field goal. I'm looking at Zach Levine right now. He's shooting 40% from the field goal, 33% from three. Those aren't the type of skills shooting as many times as he does that I want to add to this roster, especially someone who's not considered 
a dependable defender at a high level, and someone who has not taken his team, at times pretty talented with DeMar DeRozan next to him, and Vucevic, able to take that as at least an eighth or, nine, or seventh seed, or even a sixth seed. The Knicks made the fourth seed with a pretty ass roster in hindsight. Alfred Payton starting a point guard. The Bulls have not been able to do that. So I'm not convinced that he's worth, definitely not the investment that maybe Leon once offered in terms of package, but I don't even think he's worth pursuing anymore just because I like the pieces we have and I think the best possible outcome of RJ and the best possible outcome of ITU is better than Zach Ravine right now. Yeah, um, it's pretty tough because I think for me as well, I think last season I was more on board with bringing Zach Levine to the Knicks just for the simple fact that where RJ was last season, especially before the trade deadline, I didn't like the growth that he was displaying. And I thought that he was taking a step back rather than taking a step forward. And because of that, I was like, okay, well, if we can if we can put a package around RJ and get grind and get um Zach Levine. I was like, I would be for that because I think that he would have improved the team, especially with Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson, and that would be a pretty formidable three. Now this season with the growth of RJ and seeing that RJ turning into a two-way play and he's becoming more efficient shooting the ball, it makes the decision-making behind going after Zach Levine that much more tougher. And at the moment, I agree with you, Lee. I wouldn't go after Zach Levine at the moment because just for the simple fact that I feel like the Knicks are in a good position with the players that they have. And I and I believe that if you're going to go after a player, got to be a player that is going to be a game changer, a player that you know for a fact that if this player comes to your team, that's going to bring your team to the next level. And I know that it's hard to determine if a player can do that, but watching Zach Levine play, I don't. I haven't seen any evidence that he is that type of player. Where if he comes to your team, he's going to transform your roster. Now with the Bulls, I do think that them losing Lonzo Ball hurt them a lot because when Lonzo Ball played with Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan, the Bulls are actually a very good team. And then once and then once Lonzo Ball went down with an injury, it seemed like I don't know what it, I don't know what it is, but it seemed like the Bulls weren't really that good after that. So. You could make an argument that, okay, if you have Zach Levine on your roster and you surround him with the right players, it's possible that you can have a really formidable team that can can possibly go far in the playoffs. But I feel like where the Knicks are right now, I think the Knicks should stick to their guns Mm -hmm. and further develop the players that they have in their squad to see how far they can take this team. He puts a window on your roster. He's under contract, I think, for another four seasons at, like, an absurd albatross number, I think 50 or 55 million per. To me, that's not worth the investment for what he's been able to do in Chicago. And when I remember watching that Bulls team when they started off really hot and Lonzo was at the point, they were playing very selfish, high-octane, high-pace transition basketball. That is not how the Knicks play. The Knicks are still high in isolation, half-court-centric, and very slow in pace. So he wouldn't be coming to a team that has good pieces or the right pieces for him to thrive. He would be playing against two guys, three guys that need the ball in their hands and are best when they don't give it up on the way to storing. Brunson, Randall, RJ. And if RJ's gone, then he just replaces that. And it's really the same status quo. I don't see him being a notch above RJ. And I think RJ, just because of his continuity, has learned how to be better off ball and score and driving penetrations and get points up quick, opposed to you know handling it, getting stuck in his hands and trying to operate in the same mid-range areas as Brunson and Randall. So, it would be a more cluttered front court with Zach Levine added to this roster, whether he's replacing RJ or playing alongside him. And I don't think the fit is good. Uh, there's much more passing there in the Bulls when they had Lonzo and Vucevic and even DeRozan, who's a good play, underrated playmaker at least. They were moving the ball. That's just not the way the Knicks play. Tibbs and coach the same way as Billy Donovan. Like Billy Donovan likes playing up tempo. That's not how Tibbs wants to operate. So he's not the right pick. If we're going to sacrifice minimal assets, not for a big swing, but for – a tier three guy, to me, it has to address our needs, which right now is length, defense on the perimeter, and ability to score without the ball in your hands at all times. A guy like Jeremiah Grant is much more worth the assets to me, even though his contract is also inflated, than someone like Zach Levine, who needs 15 to 18 shots a night. Sounds solid to me. Sounds solid to me. Any other thoughts? 
Yeah, it's a no. It's a no. I, I think we should – if Grant's available, if he's not available, Portland's a team. It's gotten fleeced a couple of times. We fleeced him for Josh Hart. Maybe we can fleece him again. But if if a player of his caliber or, you know, plus or minus two points per game, you know, better or worse, something like that, in the 20 to 21 range that isn't available, I say stand pat, take this roster to the playoffs, see if we make the conference finals, maybe even further, and then make the decision come this summer when a lot of those pits start conveying. Uh, otherwise, there's no need to rush a trade right now, and Zach Ravine is not worth risking the cachet of assets we have and have worked very hard for and passed up great opportunities. Like those three pits we have from OKC, they Osmond Dean is not that great, but man, they got Jalen Williams after that too. Like that's from uh, Santa Clara. I, we should not, we should have kept that pick and drafted Jalen, but that's another story. But we have made sacrifices like that in the OB situation in order to retain our assets and stockpile draft picks. We shouldn't give it up for a guy like Zach Levine who comes with a lot of question marks. You heard the man, Knicks. Stay pat, unless it's a guy like Jeremy Grant, somebody like that. Yeah. You bring him in, but Zach Levine is a no-go. No-go. <laughs> All right, so you have any bro picks, any ooh picks before we go? Hmm. Bro pick, Will Smith, bro. Wait, what wait, what Will Smith do this time? Wait, hold Will on. Will Smith, man. Uh, <laughs> my guy just keeps taking L's. I, I, I feel bad oh, for him, man. It's like he apologized for the slap and he still didn't slap every day in the media. Now they're saying that like his old Bidar walked in on Dwayne. What's that comedian's name? Oh, Dwayne Martin. Dwayne Martin was like oh, taking Will Smith to town, man. I'm like, can't this guy <laughs> can't this guy catch a break? Like he's already banned from the Oscars for 10 years and he has to be, you know, living with Jay Pickett Smith, which seems to be very difficult in itself. Like give us guy a W man. He deserves a W. I hope he sues the hell out of uh, his old, his old bodyguard or whoever his, what his confidant was. Cause you can't be ratting out here in the streets, man. It's not great. Dragging his name to the mud. Uh, I'm staying with my boy, Will Smith. Sometimes someone needs to get slapped and uh, yeah, man. Uh, I'm pro. I feel bad for the guy, man. He put himself in a real shitty situation. Uh, watch out who you marry, man. It's important, you know. Yeah, most definitely. Um, it's unfortunate for Will Smith. Um, my condolences, my apologies. Hopefully, it gets better for him as time goes on. <laughs> Same prayers up. <laughs> Facts. Uh, I had a bro pick in my head. I can't recall it at the moment because there's so many things running through my head right now. If it comes back to me. I might say it for tomorrow's podcast. It's unfortunate I can't remember tonight, but hopefully it'll come back to me. I know one, one more note, not a broad pick, not a whose man is man's is this, but I do want to make a note here because we don't need to talk too much about other NBA teams all the time. But Paolo Banchero and Anthony Edwards to me are the two guys who are going to be the next faces of the NBA. Uh, I think SGA is already there, so I didn't include him, but Banchero's game as a, as a closer as an off-the-ball five-level store, because he's five-level. He is the real deal. Sometimes guys come in. I uh, There's a few dudes in the last couple of years, like Michael Beasley comes to mind, um, that were like, really highly touted to be game-changing store and forwards that don't always pan out. Banchero was inefficient last year, but a beast statistically. And this season, he's taken to a brand-new level, and a magic look really, really good. They have a great coach out there in Jamal Mosley, former assistant here in Dallas under Rick Carlisle. And man, another example of a great young black coach doing his thing over there, uh, turning those boys into men. And also Chet Holmgren, another guy I want to give a shout out to. My boy Chet, man, he's he's not Wimby. He doesn't have the off-ball scoring of Wimby, but his handles and his rebounding and shot blocking uh, instincts are well advanced for someone who hasn't played one season of NBA ball yet. He is taking OKC to that level of contender off this season off the bat. I think that will regress a little bit, but I've been really impressed by the instant impact that Anthony Edwards, Paolo Benchero, and Chet Holmgren have had on their teams. And all three teams right now, you could consider all three a contender, even though I think all three will regress by the time All-Star break comes. And right now, the, the future is very bright in those young cores on those three teams. And to me, those three guys are the face of the NBA moving forward. Most definitely, most definitely big up the young guys that are definitely on um, performing and showing that the NBA's future is bright. Super bright. I do have a broad pick though. Now yeah. I remember. I, I needed more time to, to get it back <laughs> into to get it back into memory. 
My bruh pick goes to James Harden once again because news came out that Russell Westbrook went to the Clippers coaches and was like, you know what? I'm going to come off the bench Mm -hmm. to help build the chemistry within the first unit. Now, the last time I checked, everything was good in Clipperland when it was PG, Kawhi, and Westbrook together running that first unit. They started the season three and one. So therefore, there were no chemistry issues with PG, Kawhi, and Westbrook playing together. But now Harden comes in, this man who so-called calls himself the system, comes in and he messes up the system of the Clippers to where Westbrook is like, you know what? I need to come off the bench just so that I can put Harden out there in the first unit with PG and Kawhi and build chemistry. When in reality, it should be Harden's ass coming off the bench and playing with the second unit because at least when he plays with the second unit, he can be the system. But when he plays with PG and Kawhi, you're playing with two other great players, my guy. Two other players who are better than you at this point in time. But but no, does Harden take the sacrifice? No. It's Westbrook that takes the sacrifice when he's the one that actually has the chemistry with PG and Kawhi. I can only I'm not a huge Doc Rivers fan, but I kind of I have reconsidered my stance on his Philly tenure with James Harden. Because even Ty Lewis came out and said this is the toughest coaching era period of his career, which says a lot, the pressure he was under to be a finals contender, a championship winner year after year in Cleveland. And now come to Clippers and have four top 75 guys of all time. He's saying it's the toughest coaching situation in career. It speaks volumes of James Harden's influence uh, both on and off the court. I'm sure he's hurting their chemistry. But more importantly, he's replacing guys who are very high character good like, chemistry guys and Robert Covington, Marcus Morris, and especially Nick Batum, who played their small ball closing five, was able to hit threes and guard really the one through five. He's, yeah. he's had to evolve Tayshaun Prince in the way that he played uh, that role in Clippers. And those guys are gone. And those were the long-term – they've been on a team for a pretty long time, at least uh, Batum and, and Morris had. And we know the impact Morris had here in New York and changing their culture and making this a tougher team on the road. And he was doing that in Clipperland too. Like, it's – it's you create a vacuum when that type of character is removed. And when you fill it with a guy like Harden, who is all me first, high usage, top three in isolation plays ran. I the system is broken. That and he has shown that trying to build those super teams via trades, that's the old thinking. That's not the era we're in anymore. It's all about building and cultivating draft picks and building a core of guys together that become synonymous with each other's games and understand each other's games and level up year after year through that internal chemistry and that internal continuity. Those days of those big swing trades are over. I'm glad when Nits aren't involved in them because if we had that bum-ass Steve Mills in the front office, James Harden would be in a Nits jersey right now, right now. Really on Rose, perfect, but at least he didn't bring on James Harden. And that's not a reason to worship him at all. Do not worship anybody for for NBA reasons. The only guy I worship is Carmelo Anthony. But that being said, I'm glad we at least have an above average GM right now who has made some mistakes, but has done more good than bad. Yeah, most definitely. And it's funny because when you look at the Clippers last season, were the Clippers eliminated in the first round? Yeah, but I think that was because Kawhi got hurt. Yeah, totally. If Kawhi didn't get hurt, the Clippers would have won that series against the yes. Suns. And who, and who knows how far the Clippers would have yes. went with Westbrook, PG, and Kawhi all healthy. So Westbrook fact, was cooking. He exactly. was cooking the playoffs too. Exactly. So the fact that the clip, so the fact that the Clippers front office, because I think Lawrence Frank is the GM for the Clippers, mm-hmm. the fact that yes. he thought that the Clippers needed something as like the like the Clippers needed something as big as Harden, you know, to come to the squad to help them get to that next level is baffling to me because the Clippers were good the way they are. I mean, if anything, you might make an incremental, you know, improvement, you know, maybe at the trade deadline, you bring in like another piece that seamlessly fits in and improves the team. You, you may do make a move like that to help get you to that next level. But I don't think a Harden was, I don't think a Harden or a player like that was definitely needed, especially when you have, especially when you had Westbrook, PG and Kawhi clicking the way they were clicking. What is the most insane thing to think about in this entire dilemma is as bad as a James Harden trade is, 
it's not even the worst trade they made in the last four years. That goes to Paul George, which in my opinion is the worst trade of a 21st century. He gave up three unprotected first-round draft picks, two swaps, and a future MVP in Shea Dotis Alexander, who was better than Paul George last year. Like that, he's first All-NBA first team. He's the best complete point guard in my in my opinion, and the Nets face of the NBA to point guard position moving forward. It's he's dominant. And what happened with Paul George and Clippers? Either he's injured or he's pandemic P or he's choking or he's just being mediocre. Like that was a mistake. The entire experiment of building a super team via the trades is a mistake. And then hopefully we phased out moving forward. Yeah, most definitely. But of course that was pretty much Kawhi's fault according to reports because Kawhi wanted PG at the Clippers, that's the only and that, and that was the only way he was going to sign there. So the Clippers really pretty, so the Clippers pretty much had no choice. They were they're yep. so desperate for a championship that they had to just throw away all their assets to get Paul George and to bring him here to the to, and to bring him to the Clippers. So it is what it is. Um, the Clippers pretty much got to sleep in their bed because now you have four guys, you know, hard hard and a former superstar Westbrook, former superstar Kawhi PG. All, all four guys where who need the ball to be effective and it's going to be hell for Ty Lue to get those guys to work together and find and find some type of chemistry to help get them to that next level. So that is what it is. And that is our show. Thank you for, well, I know it's, a, it's not a live show. I know you're going to catch on the record, but thank you for watching whoever watches. No um, doubt. We will be back tomorrow. When the Knicks play back-to-back, let me check on the schedule. Who do Knicks play back-to-back? Charlotte Bobcats. Oh, the Bobcats. Okay, well, the Bobcats. So that should be a Knicks win tomorrow night. Um, Thank you for watching the show. Like I said, NBA, two of our superstars are sitting tonight, but we have two of our other superstars here tonight, which is me and Lee. Let's go. Yes, sir. I don't got the I don't got the um the closeout music, the Jay-Z line, <laughs> but it's all good. We'll add it in later, post-production. <laughs> exactly. See y'all tomorrow. Peace.